This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. Today, the Great Barrington Declaration, signed by some 6,000 scientists and counting, arguing lockdowns and sheltering in place are the wrong way to manage the outbreak. Childhood obesity has been one of the biggest American health crises, but the pandemic is making things worse for overweight children. Months of pandemic eating, closed schools, canceled sports. Many kids, especially those from at-risk communities, may have to carry the scars of the pandemic for the rest of their lives. Halloween just a little over two weeks away. Some cities, like Beverly Hills, they have banned trick-or-treating. But are there safe ways to celebrate without risking infection? Infection rates spiking in many states. So we will talk with the former aide to Vice President Mike Pence to get her take on the White House response or a possible lack of response. Your blood type may have something to do with how sick you'll get if you contract the virus. Two new studies say people in a certain blood group are less likely to be infected, less likely to experience these severe symptoms. You've probably seen this term used in a lot of the course of this pandemic, herd immunity. It's the goal for an eventual COVID vaccine to achieve herd immunity so there just aren't that many people left to infect with the virus. But there's been a greater debate going on over herd immunity when it comes to the lockdowns, especially now as the White House embraces the concept. We told you on this podcast about a group of some 6,000 scientists who signed on to a declaration opposing the closures of businesses and schools in the name of achieving herd immunity. So we are going to debate this issue today with two physicians. Dr. Matthew Strauss, emergency medicine physician, professor of medicine, Queen's University, Ontario, Canada. He signed on to this Great Barrington Declaration recommending herd immunity. And Dr. Paul Fine, professor of communicable disease epidemiology at the London Center for Neglected Tropical Disease Research. He has some issues when it comes to the idea of achieving herd immunity. Uh, Dr. Strauss, let's start with you. What is in this declaration? All right. Um, so it's uh, it's the brainchild of several very um, prominent and well-respected epidemiologists from universities like Oxford, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, my own. One of the signers is a Nobel Prize laureate. And it's a, a look at the hard data to say, you know, this COVID-19, um, the, the mortality is not the 3% that we thought it was back in February. It's something more like 0.3%. And beyond that, um, almost all of the deaths are in elderly folks or folks with other very significant medical problems. So um, in our view, we ought to exploit the fact that some folks are a thousand times less likely to die of this disease than other more vulnerable folks. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty straightforward strategy to let young folks um, go on with their lives, keep the economy afloat so that they and are in a better position, uh, and all of us are in a better position to focus our time and our resources in protecting the people who are truly vulnerable. Um, this strategy has a number of important benefits. One is that it, it doesn't um, uh, cause all of the other public health problems that lockdowns do. So in, in the United States, homicides are up 50%. I, I read a statistic that 25% of young people are contemplating suicide. So the lockdowns have been really, really hard on folks, and that's going to show up in myriad 
uh, psychological and physical ways. Um, and the, the other benefit of such an approach is that when the young people um, get COVID, get over COVID, they're going to have some amount of herd immunity, which will further protect the vulnerable. Dr. Fine, to you now, your thoughts on trying to achieve herd immunity through letting the young people get back out there and resume pretty, pretty full economic activity. Uh, well, well, let me say this, the idea put forward in this great Barrington Declaration has been discussed for months now. This is just the latest manifestation of a strategy which, as I say, has received a good deal of currency at least since March. And it's been recognized since at least March that, no, <laughs> indeed, by February, that mortality rates increased incredibly by age. And, uh, and uh, so this has been known for a, a long time. Um, that the, the people who drafted this, um, I happen to know one of them extremely well, and uh, not experienced public health person. I don't know about the other ones. Um, but I, the people who are wrestling with strategy are facing considerable practical difficulties. Now, the, the declaration as drafted, there's a sort of arrogance to it, as though they're the first people who thought of this, and as though they're the ones, uh, they phrase, our goal should be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. In effect, that's the strategy for virtually everybody involved in deciding strategy for COVID. They talk about current lockdown policies. There are many different policies in different countries, as we all know. It's not as though there's only one. And they, yes, you know, look at Germany, look at Sweden, look at New Zealand, look at the United States, look at this country, and we can talk about differences. They are, comp they are complicated. They are complicated. Um, there's a sort of simplistic view to this, to this declaration, which is why in addition to the arrogance that I didn't sign it, uh, they state those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Really? What about a young person who is living with a parent who is obese and has diabetes and also there's a grandparent in the house? Yes, are there issues there? There are, as all of us who think about the practicality recognize. It's not simple what you do in terms of coming up with a policy for that. It's interesting, however, that if you look at this country now, and I'm sure several other countries, I can't comment that policies in the United States are so incredibly chaotic. But in this country, for example, universities have reassembled and students are brought in to, to uh, dormitories. And they're a bit unhappy because they're having classes remotely now, this policy is actually fully consistent with the Great Barrington Declaration. There are large numbers of infected individuals in these communities. They're building up immunity. The fact that they are having their classes remotely 
They aren't thus exposing their elderly, elderly academic staff. So that sort of thing is going on. Dr. Strauss, uh, to some of the points that Dr. Fine uh, was making, one, uh, what about uh, having younger people who live in households, after all, especially now because of economic conditions, with older people who may be more vulnerable, isn't that a, a an issue that wouldn't really be resolved by the declaration? And and then there's another point, too, that Dr. Fine didn't bring up, but I will, which is that, as you know, we are finding more and more cases, maybe a minority, but more and more cases of young people who they may not die, but they do contract the coronavirus. They do get COVID-19. And some of them, and we've had them on our show, are living with the consequences months after their initial infection. They're going about their normal business. Wouldn't it be good for them either? Uh, thank you for those questions. So um, to the matter of intergenerational households, um, the first thing to, to note is in my country, as in yours, it's about five or 6% of young people live in an intergenerational household. So we do have to craft policies um, that fit for the 94%. And then we do need to focus efforts on protecting those outliers in the in the five or 6% uh, who do live in those households. The Great Barrington Declaration certainly does not say if you live with an elderly or otherwise vulnerable person, uh, you should go do everything you used to do. It says that you should be allowed to do that. So your your basic personal liberties need to be preserved, but there needs to be intense education and government resources in helping those who make a different decision for themselves and their household. So just by, to put it into perspective, in my country, in Canada, we have spent $300 billion on COVID-19 measures. We spent, in, adjusted for inflation, $100 billion on six years of fighting World War II. So um, it, it, it's been an incredible amount of resources that we spent largely on paying perfectly healthy 21-year-olds to stay home and, and collect unemployment. If we've taken all of those resources and help those people in the real sticky situations that Dr. Fine mentioned, um, so, so perhaps you're a bus driver or a school teacher with lung problems, I am very much in favor, and most of the Great Barrington Declaration signatories are, in um, helping those people, putting, um, paying them. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, they should be at home with full pay. Um, uh, right, but, to, but what about but what about the the other part of the question is what about younger people who we do sure. know do get ill and sometimes very seriously ill from COVID nineteen? So generally, when a young person becomes very seriously ill, um, they have some other identifiable medical risk factor. So I have been look, I'm a life support specialist. I've been looking after uh, patients in the ICU with COVID. And 100% of the COVID patients that I have looked after are over 65 with important medical problems. Yes, there are outliers, but that's true of every disease. So some common cold viruses can cause terrible, like I've seen heart failure in young people from common cold viruses. It's a one in a million thing. Um, what I have not seen with respect to this issue of long COVID is anything to quantify that um, it's more of a risk in this than other problems. So I, I, I do think there's just a little bit of um, a panic. And when there is a case of long COVID, it is extremely, extremely well publicized. Dr. Fine, when there are herd immunity discussions these days, are they hitting the mark or are they missing it? Wasn't it originally meant to be used in the topic of a vaccine? You get enough people vaccinated, then the virus doesn't have places to go instead of letting a virus move through a population and then it doesn't have many places to go? 
Yes, a good deal of the discussion came up in the context of vaccine and vaccine policy, but herd, herd immunity, um, what is it referred to? It refers to a protection of the susceptibles, the non-immunes brought about by the presence and prevalence of immune individuals in a population. And that immunity may be derived by a vaccine or by natural infection. In the days before, take a simple example, before, before a measles vaccine came along, what did one have? One had cycling of the proportion immune in a population around a herd immunity level. The herd immunity in that instance was derived from natural infection. The the whole notion uh, again on, on herd immunity, uh, Doctor Strauss in Canada. Uh, I know there are figures that are kind of all over the map. There are some uh, experts who are saying perhaps you can achieve it at twenty or thirty percent of the population, and we've had other people on the show who have said that's nonsense. You need sixty to seventy percent. If that higher number, sixty to 70% is more accurate, then isn't it real? I mean, by the time you get any kind of herd immunity, how many people would end up dead? It depends on who's infected, mainly. So as I said, elderly folks or otherly, otherwise unwell folks are a thousand times more likely to die of COVID-19 if they get it than young folks. So whatever the, the percentage ends up being, 20, 30, or 60%, if we can make sure that it's the 20, 30 or 60 percent of society that is uh, less vulnerable to bad outcomes, I think very, very few people will die of it. It's Dr. Matthew Strauss there, emergency medicine physician at Queen's University in Ontario. Dr. Paul Fine, professor, communicable diseases, epidemiology, London Center for the Neglected Tropical Disease Research. Before the coronavirus pandemic, childhood obesity was one of the most complicated health challenges of our time. Now... Public health researchers are worried the crisis has only become more severe. Pandemic has deepened already severe health inequities in America, including for children who were already at high risk for obesity and other health problems. KYW's Matt Leon spoke with Jamie Bussell, Senior Program Officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. How big a problem right now is the concept of childhood obesity in the United States? Childhood obesity continues to be um, an epidemic in our country, and I would argue one of the most complicated public health challenges of our time. And this was something before anybody knew who, what COVID-19 was. This was a serious problem in the country, right? You bet it was. So how has the pandemic exacerbated this? So it's, it's interesting because I think that the pandemic and the obesity epidemic are intersecting in many, many ways. As an example, you know, the, the data on impacts of COVID very much reflect or mimic the data uh, on childhood obesity. So the pandemic we know is hit hardest in communities of color. It's disproportionately affecting kids and families from lower incomes. And broadly speaking, it's deepened already um, existing health inequities. And that's true for kids and families. I think the COVID epidemic really underscores the clear and urgent need to reform the longstanding discriminatory systems and policies that have harmed our health, um, particularly the health and well-being of communities of color, communities farthest from economic opportunity. And interestingly and not surprisingly, 
public health advocates have long been advocating for a lot of those similar changes to address childhood obesity. Um, so, you know, again, obesity, childhood obesity, obesity is impacted by so many factors. It's not just whether or not a child or a family has access to healthy, affordable food or opportunities for safe physical activity. Of course, those matter and are important. But just as important are things like, does that family have a stable income? Do they have a safe place to live? Do they have reliable transportation? Do they have health insurance? Do they have access to high quality, affordable health care and child care and access to healthy food? So I think what the pandemic has done is really shined a light on the imperative for us to really be rethinking the systems and policies that are driving our health and well-being and um, making it very, very difficult for kids and families to have the opportunities to live well and be healthy. Is there a way, have you got, did you guys track data that can show just how much it's gotten worse during this pandemic? So interestingly, the data that we have actually comes from a, a national survey of kids between the ages of 10 and 17. And that's data that's um, combined from the years 2018 and 2019 and shows us that approximately 15% of kids in that age range have obesity. Now, we will not necessarily be able to say exactly the impact on prevalence rates as a consequence of COVID for a few more years. So again, we can certainly hypothesize that given the school closures, the difficulties and challenges of accessing healthy, affordable foods, the decrease in opportunities to be outside and be physically active, all of those drivers are likely to um, potentially increase rates, but it's too early for us to say we just don't have the science yet around that. So they're hypotheses. When we come back, Halloween may be canceled in 90210. Plus, the White House says we've turned the corner in the pandemic. But have we? We will ask a former aide to the White House Coronavirus Task Force. The city of Beverly Hills is the latest municipality to ban trick-or-treating in the middle of this pandemic. Are there any Halloween-related group activities that could be considered, you know, relatively safe? Dr. Anita Gorwara, family medicine physician, director of the urgent care at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. So, doctor, people out there are saying a ban, really? I mean, kids are wearing masks anyways. Just put another mask under your mask and just give away some candy. We know touch doesn't spread that much. What do you say to them? Well, when you give out candy, you're usually giving it out in a common bowl, and uh, the kids who are receiving the candy don't know where the candy has been prior to getting into their bags. Um, and so you're kind of mixing up a bunch of candy from a bunch of houses in a common bag, which is just a um, um, an area of disaster uh, when you get that candy home. So trick-or-treating is, is not going to happen this year. I, I think uh, most counties and places, especially in L.A. County, where uh, our cases are still pretty high. It would not be safe. You know, I, I heard a um, a doctor this morning make the argument in effect that, uh, you know, hey, you know, kids have they've lost so much already uh, you know, schooling in, in, you know, in-person schooling uh, activities with friends, that kind of thing uh, because of the pandemic. Can't we at least give them 
Halloween? And I have a feeling I know, because you've kind of just said it, that the answer is no. Give them Halloween. I mean, most kids have um, created their own little bubble um, of uh, or pods that they've seen, especially little kids between K and second grade are the ones who really enjoy Halloween. And they've most, at least my patients that I've seen, they have their own uh, pods where they've been having teachers do their education. And within that little pod, I think if they were to uh, get together in a backyard and dress up, um, if they're already seeing each other every day for school um, and wore their masks, and if you know each parent brought the candy for their own child, I think that would be a safe way to do it. Um, and again, I think if you did do everything in the backyard and you social distance and they were wearing masks anyway, um, and there was under 10 kids, you could still, you could do that. But I think trick-or-treating how you go for, um, you know, house to house in the traditional form is, is not a safe way to do it. Yeah. You're leaving your street and usually canvassing the whole neighborhood. That's what we used to do. Right. So I guess you try and do it as safely as possible, but then this is the first of many holidays. So what do you do when it comes to Thanksgiving and Christmas? Let's look ahead and Hanukkah. When you want to gather with people, but we're told don't gather with people. Well, again, I think if it's your family and you've already been gathering with them, <laughs> you're, you're, you're pretty safe. And again, you know, most people by this point in time have, have got their people, those that don't have families around who they have been in touch with. Um, I'm praying for good weather for Thanksgiving, so you can still do something in your backyard. Um, the more outside and social distance you are, the safer you are. And again, if you are routinely in connect, you know, in connection with the same people, uh, you'd be you'd be safe to at least have that. I, I don't think you're going to have large office Christmas parties, um, staff parties. Uh, those things are are definitely not going to happen. Christmas Eve is not going to happen. Um, for the same, you know, just until we, we have, I think until at least we have a vaccine um, and the numbers drop. Well, you're not going to have Christmas parties in, in the office because there's nobody in the office, right? There's nobody, nobody well, to celebrate with. you'd be surprised how many, how many people are, are going to the office. Yeah, no, that's true. That's yeah. true. But, 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 you know, here's, here's part of the problem. Until a vaccine, is what you said, probably comes along. But, and we just did this the other day, you know, by the time you get a vaccine, if we get a vaccine, and by the time you have distribution and enough people, we, we could be talking about this impacting even next Halloween and even next Thanksgiving and even the Christmas of 2021, how long will people's patience last with this? I don't think much longer. And and what I've been telling my patients is that, you know, everyone's still hanging their last breath on this vaccine. But you know what? Wearing your mask is is much safer and uh, than any vaccine is going to be. If you, if you continue to wear your mask, you're going to be more protected from this virus um, than a vaccine probably would, would give you. So, I mean, the mask wearing and social distancing, if that just becomes our reality until we see a significant drop, which I anticipate, I don't think um, the virus is going to last up until they'll, they'll be like the stray case by the end of next year, but I don't think it's going to be in the numbers that we're seeing now. So I'm, I just hope, you know, try to be positive and hope that that things are going to get better because that's what keeps people going. But as long as we mask and social distance and get through this flu season and winter, I'm pretty 
pretty positive that, you know, by the time the spring and summer comes, we're going to see such a significant drop that uh, by the next Halloween and holiday season, we should be hopefully somewhere near normal. Dr. Anita Gorwara, family medicine physician, directs the urgent care Providence St. John's in Santa Monica. If you're feeling like you've heard this before, you're right. Once again, COVID cases and hospitalization starting to surge in dozens of states across the country. In fact, more than half of American states are now considered to be in the red zone by standards set by the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And this is before we get into the dreaded colder winter months. But with less than three weeks to go before the election, the Trump administration seems more committed than ever to the strategy of insisting the virus is simply going away. Olivia Troy has uh, been here before as well, served as a Homeland Security counterterrorism advisor to the vice president, Mike Pence, and aides to the White House Coronavirus Task Force. If you were to characterize the current response from the White House as we move closer to winter, what would it be? I find this very concerning right now. We have been talking about this since uh, the springtime, to be honest, on the White House COVID task force. Uh, the doctors have actually been warning us. They had told the vice president and they briefed the president on the fact that going into the fall and winter, uh, we were going to need this time during the spring and the summer of the time to make sure that we got ahead of what could possibly happen. And, you know, I think Dr. Fauci has still said today that ideally we would like to be at far less cases, at least 10,000 or under. And right now watching it close to 50,000 right now daily, increasing daily is problematic. And I think we are facing a very long and hard winter ahead of us. Is there a, a, uh, a difference of opinion on this uh, between the president and the vice president. I mean, Vice President Pence, of course, as as we pointed out, uh, it's his task force, right? Uh, is he on the same page as President Trump when it comes to what some people are describing as kind of COVID denial? You know, I think the vice president is very good at falling in line with what his boss demands of him. The early days of the task force, what were those like? They were they were challenging and they were very hard. Uh, they were they were they were very long days that went on for a few months. They were, you know, at the time the virus was very unpredictable. There were a lot of unknowns amongst the task force members and what we were watching. We certainly saw the gravity of the situation going on in Wuhan, China, and we watched it, you know, expand. We watched the virus spread to other countries, and there was there was definitely concern that this was going to be a pretty dangerous situation. And it wasn't a matter of if, it would be a matter of when it would come to the United States. Why are you not part of this team anymore? Well, you know, I have a lot of respect for the doctors on the task force and a lot of the experts um, that are on it. And I worked very, very closely with them. And I watched them give everything night and day. And I was out there with them in the trenches during this pandemic and this crisis. But at the end of the day, you know, I would, as much as you're, you're fighting to do the right thing, the problem in this White House is a political influence and the narrative. And the focus was really on what the president was focused on, which was economics, the stock market, and other things that were really overshadowing 
the ability of these experts and the task force to really make a difference on what was happening. And for me personally, the closer the election got, the harder these dynamics became. And I was, I worked very closely with the vice president. I worked closely with a lot of the White House senior officials. But at some point, I, I just felt that I was no longer able to be effective in countering these forces. And, you know, it was a constant fight every single day and watching the president continue to undermine people like Dr. Fauci and continue to ignore the science and the data and for them to task me at times to try to manipulate it behind the scenes to paint a less grim picture and to paint a picture that this pandemic wasn't as bad as it seemed. At some point, you just, you get to the point where if you're not able to overcome these, I just decided, you know, that it, it's time. It's time for me to walk away from this. And when you started talking, you were hit with the disgruntled employee line. The president says, best to his knowledge, he's never met you. You were some kind of lower level person. Uh, why should people listen to you? He was a very hard decision uh, to speak out and tell people what I had witnessed firsthand. I have been in every single task force. I have been in every single task force since January, since the creation of it, until the day I left. And I was a big part of the coordination and the organization of the agendas and everything. And at times I, I wrote the vice president's remarks. I was a fact checker on them. And I was there for these press briefings where, you know, the president would be given talking points and the VP would have talking points and the president would go off the rails and at times suggest that people should go inject themselves with bleach. And it was horrifying to watch this firsthand. And as time went on and I left the White House and I separated from my government service and my entire you know, national security career, I just couldn't stand by anymore and continue to watch the president, the continuous undermining of what the severity of what this is. And as the election got closer, I said, you know, maybe people will listen, maybe they won't, but I at least have to tell people what I've seen so that they have the information before they go to the polls and really understand who this person is that they're voting for. You know, the president has said in various ways in different times that he cares about the health of the American public. The other day he said on one of his Twitter videos that he cares about senior citizens. Does he? Absolutely not. The president only cares about himself. And like he shows this time and time again. He doesn't hide it. You know, if he cared about the health of Americans, we've said mass gatherings are not good and that they put people at risk. He continues to have these rallies. He continues to misinform the public and try to, you know, and he doesn't wear a mask and he tells people. He tell he shows people by example that that he's okay without wearing a mask and he himself has had COVID and he continues to behave in this manner. And in terms of the nursing homes, I've got to tell you, I saw a tweet last night from the president and I was I was flabbergasted when I saw him using that photo of people in assisted living facilities. I mean, these are the, this population has been gravely affected, significantly affected by COVID. And there have been outbreaks in nursing homes. And it was just so disgusting to watch the president tweet that out and mock Joe Biden as a candidate, but not only mock him with this disrespect these people who have been suffering and disrespect a whole population that many of us, you know, we've, we've lost parents, we've lost grandparents. And I, 
it just, it, it, that is a prime example of how he just doesn't care. He doesn't care what he's saying, what he's communicating. He doesn't care about any of us. Olivia Troy was a Homeland Security counterterrorism advisor to VP Mike Pence, aides to the White House Coronavirus Task Force. If you have blood type O, you may be in luck. Two recent studies finding that people with blood type O are more resilient to COVID-19 which means they are less vulnerable to the virus. And even if they contract it, the chances of them getting seriously ill are lower than other blood types. One of the studies is from Denmark, where researchers say among the COVID-19 patients, there was a lower percentage of people with blood type O and higher percentages of those with types AB and AB. The other study comes from Canada, It says among 95 critically ill COVID patients hospitalized, those with type A or AB blood were more likely to require mechanical ventilation. But medical experts warn just because you're in blood group O, you cannot start going to bars and parties. (laughs) Sorry, you're out of luck. Listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 